This episode of Undercommon Taste is sponsored by... Of Mice and Men and Monsters is a podcast which combines the art and beauty of classic literature with the fun of Dungeons and Dragons roleplay. These episodes are led by me, Kate, Dungeon Master meets High School English Teacher. We take on quests in these fascinating worlds, meeting and adventuring with the greatest literary characters of all time. It's a much more exciting way to experience literature than writing an essay. Essays don't have swords which burst into flame. A new episode of Of Mice and Men and Monsters is released every other Wednesday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Common Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Remember, Petitioner, when you lay on the field, body broken, gasping your last breaths, fight harder next time. I'm Ian Woodworth, and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today, we are starting our trek into the heroic domains of Isgard. Isgard is the plane of neutral good chaos. So it sits between Arborea and Limbo. So chaos with a little bit of good. Just a smidge. Though, I mean, honestly, as we get into this realm, this sounds great. I mean, obviously, from the quote and stuff we'll get through, this seems to be modeled after Valhalla. This place sounds like it would get boring really fast. It sounds kind of like a Bill Murray movie almost. So it is based very heavily off of Norse mythology, as you can probably gather from the name. Most of the Norse pantheon is here. It is With just... one glaring exception. Yeah, I did say most. Most. Well, I'm thinking there is a member that does not belong to the Norse pantheon that's here. That makes zero sense, and I don't know why she gets thrown in. But. There, there's more than one non-Norse god here. Okay. I do know the one you're talking about because she does play very prominently. And we have mentioned her before in a previous episode. We have. And we're going to get to that. I think we're going to end up having to get t-shirts about we're going to get to that later. <laughs> yeah. Just, just get t-shirts to say we're going to get to that later. <laughs> this is what we call a hook. <laughs> this is how we keep you sitting there through an hour-long episode. Um, <laughs> but the description of Isgard is a rugged realm of soaring mountains, deep fjords, windswept battlefields, and dark caverns that hide the secret forges of the dwarves. So yes, this is very Scandinavian in feel. So the way that I picture it is it's basically a death metal festival in the Scandinavian wilderness with the color saturation turned up to 11. That is a wonderful mental image. You know, if it weren't for copyright issues or anything like that, you know, we'd have the band Deathlock sitting here playing in the background for us. Vintersorg is the epitome of Isgard right now. Another great example would be Dragon Force back when Guitar Hero 3 was the big thing. Yeah, through Fire and Flames. Which I have to say, that was one of the worst live performances I have ever seen in my entire life. To put this succinctly of how atrocious this was, I had a friend who was shot delivering pizzas. He was a pizza delivery. He was shot. He was in the hospital for several months. Almost killed him. He got back. We were there, and my friend was like, you know what? I would almost rather get shot again than have to sit there and listen to more of this concert. You know, it was that bad. Yeah, so you had mentioned that it was a terrible concert back when we did our uh, Bards episode. 
Yes. You did not go into that much detail. <laughs> yeah, no, they were terrible. But this would definitely be sort of the Vintersorg, Corpaclani, that sort of Norwegian folk metal kind of feel to it. It is very Viking. This is where you go when you want to unleash your inner Viking. Children of Bodom would actually be a good stand-in for here as well. Just that dark, almost kissed-looking makeup with the black and white and the metal spikes, and you're standing in the middle of a hot spring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the plane does follow the cycle of the seasons, but it is a very harsh environment. So the winter is dark and frozen and bitter cold, while the summer has some mild breezes and a midnight sun. So it is like Scandinavia, where in the wintertime, the sun doesn't come up. And in the summertime, the sun doesn't go down. That is one of the things I would love to see. You know, the northern lights, which we're hitting the peak of or we're hitting the high activity level of a solar maximum cycle. So that's, you know, having some chances here. But that midnight sun is something I want to see. Northern Lights are definitely something I want to see. So that is way high on my list. So, I mean, as you set up your campaign, as you're in this, yeah, I got some stuff you could sit there and kind of tack up for poster wall type stuff. It's definitely, if you want to get some Led Zeppelin and the Immigrant Song going through, not the Immigrant Song. Yeah, the Immigrant Song. The Immigrant Song. I am terrible with titles. Have your kittens in their horned helmets riding their longboat across the pond. Maybe get a Bugs Bunny on a fat unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> with the Which braids. is one of the best Looney Tune cartoons ever. I love that one. Yeah. Okay, so the plane consists of these large floating land masses referred to as earthbergs. Some of them are simply island size. Some of them are continent size. And they float through the air in these rivers of earth. So it's, it's definitely getting that this is chaos feel. This is a natural progression from the chaos of limbo, where everything just sort of floats together. And as it's going up away from chaos and towards law, it's starting to coalesce a little bit. That's a good way of putting that. The way I pictured this when I read it is like you get some of the videos of either the massive mudslides after there's been a huge wildfire or even yeah, the, the, classic, way... the classic flows. Like whenever you get like a flash flood and it just picks up all of the everything. Rocks. I was thinking that, but with a tidal wave. But yeah, exactly that where you just have so much everything just moving and so yeah you just have chunks of the earth like a sliding puzzle almost yeah the classic flows is the perfect way to describe that and all of these bergs are illuminated from the underside because they're on fire and you are able to navigate from one earthberg to another on longboats that sort of half float half fly on these earth rivers that connect the earthbergs and occasionally the rivers cross one another and these earthbergs collide. And depending on the size of the bergs hitting one another, it could be a very sudden violent jolt or it could be just a very long, gentle, almost imperceptible tremor. That said, there are so many earthbergs throughout the plane that there's always the sound of rock grinding because there's always constantly some collision somewhere that you're going to pick up either sound or feel or anything like that. So, I mean, is this plane metal enough for you yet? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And as you go down the layers, the earth gets more compact. There's fewer gaps between 
So the first layer is very notably, you've got these moats that are floating and there are very clearly defined rivers of earth that they're flowing through. Whereas once you get down to the second layer, which by the way, has the fire on top instead of on the bottom, which makes it not very friendly. (laughs) But by the time you get to that layer, there's far less space in between the earthbergs It's not quite a uniform mass, but it's more akin to a land mass with big lakes in it. So kind of like Minnesota, only the lakes are air that you fall through as opposed to water. (laughs) Right. And then when you get down to the third layer, it's all so compacted together that it's basically solid earth with tunnels running through it. And it actually has a very similar sort of feel to what we had in Pandemonium, where it's this earthen layer that's just run through with warrens of tunnels but because it's good instead of evil you're not going to get the madness effects that you're going to have in pandemonium right no that makes a lot of sense but a simple way to envision this as the earth itself the earthen material kind of solidifies as you go down it's almost like the reverse of a frozen lake where you have the frozen solid water on top and then it's kind of slush, and then it's liquid. On this, the earth is more liquid up top, and then it solidifies as you go further down. Yeah, and it makes a little bit of sense if you stop to think about the fact that you arrive in Isgard on that first layer, where everything's spread out. So, in theory, if you were to look at the cosmology of the Great Wheel, you're a little bit closer to Limbo up there on the top, because that's where you enter. That's the layer that is the most exposed to everything and as you move away from limbo as you move away from pure chaos everything sort of starts to congeal into something that is a little more normal that stands to perfect reason yeah at least that's the rationale that i've got going and we're dm so we're right so meh (laughs) Meh. this is our podcast damn it you're listening to us anyway we're a bit salty tonight (laughs) just a little bit if you Um, can't tell it's October was a month. It really was. October was a month and I don't like it. Anyway, continuing on. Next thing we want to talk about is the petitioners of Isgard because the petitioners of Isgard are a very substantial portion of the mechanics of Isgard to the point where it is one of the two paragraphs that you actually get in the fifth edition DMG about Isgard. So the petitioners of Isgard are the valiant dead. These are the individuals who died in glorious battle. They tend to be rugged individualists. They only really band together for common goals in the most dire of circumstances. Otherwise, they're just as likely to fight someone when they see them as they are to say hello. And anyone on this plane, be they petitioner, be they proxy, be they a planar entity like an angel or a Valkyrie or an Asura or a mortal that happens to be there, if they die on the plane of Isgard, they return to life the next morning as if they had had true resurrection cast on them. Yeah, and this kind of gets to where I was talking about at the beginning, kind of like feels like a Bill Murray movie. This could very quickly become a Groundhog Day movie. If there is a guardian you need to pass, or maybe there's something going on, 
Another great example of this would be the end of the first Doctor Strange movie. You know, he's got the time stone, so every time he dies, he just resets himself and goes back again until the dude basically rage quits. You know, it's like, God damn, I'm just, I'm bored of this. I'm tired of you. <laughs> That's Yisgard for eternity. <laughs> Absolutely. And it only works on creatures who are slain in Yisgard. So if you have a corpse of somebody who was killed somewhere else and you bring it in, it's still just going to be a corpse. But everyone else, everyone who fights and dies on Isgard gets to wake up in the morning and eat breakfast and try all over again. So the goal is to transport them to Isgard before they fail that third life-saving throw. Yeah, before they fail their third death save, you banish them to Isgard. <laughs> <laughs> and just wake them up in the morning. It's a weird B&B. It's a very weird B&B. There's breakfast, there's bacon, there's that pig that everyone eats forever because, you know, that's a Norse myth thing. Pig that good, you only eat it one leg at a time. Yeah, and then, <laughs> you, you know, you just bring them back after that saying, hey, you know what, we're good. <laughs> yeah, the trick is going to be getting them back from Ysgard, I think. Yes. Because you would actually have to go and fetch them unless they are capable of plane shifting on their right. own. But that is something that you can figure out once they're not dead. Exactly. <laughs> You've got time now. You've got yeah. all the time in the world. You've got all the time <laughs> in the multiverse. Yes. So the petitioners on Isgard see charity as weakness. They have this sense that every soul should succeed or fail on their own merits. So this is the most American plane in existence. This is the America fuck yeah plane. It really is. This is kind of also the frat plane part too. It's not kind of like the frat party plane that, oh God, what plane was that? That was Arborea. Yeah, that Arborea was, but this definitely still has that feel of, you know, a bunch of frat brothers that are just kind of dicks. <laughs> This is the eternal hazing ritual is what it really is. is. And, you know, only the truly sadistic ones of them actually get any enjoyment out of it. <laughs> they kill you and you say, thank you, sir. I have made of another and you raise the next day. Great. <laughs> no, that's what you say when you wake up is thank you, sir. May I have another? And then they do it again just because they can. Eventually you figure it out and then you kill them. And that's how you break the cycle for a day for a day. So they have a disdain for magic in general, and I'll get to why a little bit when we go and talk about the different magical effects that, at least in second edition Planescape, you had whenever you went to Isgard. Meteor Storm. <laughs> uh, but they especially had a disdain for healing magic for things that would restore hit points cure wounds or cure diseases or anything like that mainly because they feel like there's a certain honor in overcoming your wounds and powering through and achieving your goal anyway right they kind of feel like it's cheating and i mean at the end of the day just take your respawn and you'll be fine so why bother? Again, these are people that died valiantly in battle and life, and now they res every day. There is no fear of death. Yeah, these are the people who wanted to be out there fighting. These are not the reluctant soldiers that are out on the battlefield because they got drafted and they have to be out there and they don't want to be there and they're killing to keep from being killed and they're going to keep doing it until they are told that they're allowed to go home. These are not those people. These are the pure chaos woohoo people. These are the Torin Giants Banes of D&D. These are the guys that they wake up in the morning and they look for someone to fight. And they seek out everyone that they can who might be better than them just to fight them to see if they actually are. 
Which I mean, in that there is something about proving yourself bodily, you know, kind of constantly running yourself against that benchmark that I can kind of embrace. This is not my plane by any stretch, but I can kind of embrace that constantly testing yourself and checking for improvement or anything like that. Especially with the knowledge that if you mess up and you die, you wake up the next morning and get to try again. Yeah, just rinse and repeat. Yeah. And because the petitioners can engage anyone in their quest for glory, it implies that unlike most of the petitioners of the Upper Plains, the petitioners in Isgard retain their memories, at least their memories post-death that sent them to Isgard. Because it implies that they have a drive, that they have a goal in mind that they continually seek out. And they know how they failed that goal previously and are able to learn from it in order to attempt to do better the next time. I could see that. And I could even see if the petitioners who were here had either memories of their last battle or maybe all of their battles that they've lived through. And that way they keep their fighting skill with them and they keep it honed. That would make a lot of sense for this plane. They might not necessarily remember you know, family life or politics or things like that, but they would remember fighting. And at this point, I think it would be so ingrained into their souls or their being. And that would make perfect sense for this plane that everything about them is combat. And it's like what we talked about in the Beastlands with, was it the House of All Knowledge? How the petitioners there, they retained their knowledge of the crafting skills and their bardic stories and all of those things, but they remembered nothing else. So they had the knowledge, but not the life experience context to go with it. I think that it would probably be something similar to that, where they retain their martial knowledge, but they don't keep any of the real life context around that once they pass on into Isgard, because that's not the important part. I could totally see that. The important part is fighting all day, every day for the rest of eternity. That said, this would be a great way like if you had a campaign of warriors or paladins or something like that to send them here for barbarians would be amazing but send them here for their downtime this is where they'd wind up training and learning new martial skills because that's just what they do and again you wake up at the end of the day there was a tom cruise movie i believe it was edge of tomorrow yeah where some alien thing happened i forget like he something happened the plot was weird but basically whenever he died he woke up at the beginning of the day he died so he could constantly learn and improve and this would be exactly that again kind of that whole groundhog day thing but a wonderful crucible in a great way again to learn those martial skills you learn it or you die and you keep doing it until you don't die and something stronger kills you so you learn more and again a great training tool and so notable petitioner souls can become Einheriar. So these are the ethereal warriors. We talked about them a bit way, way long ago. This is the plane that they normally reside in because the Einheriaren are a Norse construct. They are part of Norse mythology. So naturally they would reside here whenever they're not out and about doing their Einheriar things. But they respond to prayers to even the odds in one-sided conflicts. So if you have a battle where one side grossly outnumbers the other, the Iron Harriar will show up on the side of the people who are outnumbered, just enough of them to even the odds to give everybody a fighting chance 
Yeah, this is a good balance. And again, you can go back and forth with Laura and why. And they're less here because they're helping, but because it is so one-sided that, hey, I individually could turn the tide of this battle. That's that whole glory and battle thing where I am so good that I can take an army on by myself. And so they will always fight on the side of the underdog. You're not going to find the Einherjar as the overall aggressor, I would say. Right. They would definitely be on the defensive side of any given conflict because you're not going to end up having the weaker side typically attacking the superior side. Unless it was like a last stand type thing. Absolutely, yeah. In which case, then you're definitely going to have some Einherjar. <laughs> yes. Like, you'd probably find an Einherjar if Custer's Charge could summon there, just because they were so horribly outnumbered, because the strategy for that battle was just absolutely stupid, and that's a whole different thing. There may have been an Einherjar in that battle, possibly, maybe. Custer was kind of a dick, probably didn't ask for help, but that kind of battle would be where the attacker would be outmatched in, yeah, things. The Einherjar are how Henry V won at Agincourt. Yes. All right. So the races of petitioners within Isgard are largely dependent on their location within the plane. So there's a realm called Alfheim, literally elf home in Old Norse, and that's where the elves go. Strangely enough. These are not going to be your hippie forest elves like you're going to have in Arborea. These are going to be like the elves in the game Symbarum where they will kill you if you're not an elf just because you're not an elf. And if you see one, it's because 50 of his friends have already loosed arrows at you. These are the Skyrim elves, the Thalmor? Thalmor, yeah. These are not friendly in the least. <laughs> At least that's the impression that I get. Right. These are definitely the Scandinavian scary elves and not the... Not the Keeblers. Definitely not the Keeblers, but <laughs> you know, not your hoity-toity, fancy, high not elves. Not Legolas. <laughs> yeah, they're not Legolas. Then you have Jotunheim, literally giant home, which is where frost and fire giants are. I could hang out with these guys, at least the fire giants. The frost giants would be a little too chilly for me. But I could hang out with some fire giants. I could do that. These guys are on the second layer where all of the fire is on top. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you want to keep warm. And because of the giant heritage in their race, Goliaths would probably be here as well. Yeah, I could see that. That would make a lot of sense. They'd be more on the side of the frost giants, I would imagine. But yeah, that makes probably. That make sense. Yeah. And then you have humans, which are going to be found around the city of Asgard, the Moon Gates, and Vanaheim. And then dwarves and a secretive sect of dark elves are going to be found on the third layer of Nidavellir. Or Nidavellir. Nidavellir, I think. That's the bottom layer where everything has basically come together enough to be a solid mass with tunnels through it. But the solid mass, they say, very much resembles the Underdark. Yes, which is why you're going to find certain sects of good-aligned drow here. Which is kind of cool, because, I mean, as much as the drow... I mean, they're not all dicks, but they largely are kind of douche nozzles. So this is the first I've heard in lore of an actual sect of good-aligned drow versus, you know, the random outcast. So kind of fun. So... Ari Salvatore has stated that the drow of Menzo Baranzan are not representative of the drow as a whole. And in the more recent books, they have actually fleshed out some of the other sects of drow that are decidedly less evil. 
Oh, that's awesome. I need to go check those books out then because, I mean, I love the Driss novels for what they are and the time they are written. There's some definite problematic themes and, for and the he, early books. And, he, and I've has, heard that, he has addressed that. Which I am very happy about. I, you know what? That shows growth as a human and as an artist and as an author. So good job for him. That kind of makes being able to enjoy the books a little easier now. Yeah, Dragon Talk had him on three, four weeks ago, I think it was, uh, talking about the most recent Drist novel. And he talked about his evolution as an author and how he now looks back at the earlier books and sees some of the cultural biases that he didn't realize he had early on that he has worked to overcome in the later books. I can totally respect that. It was actually a really awesome interview. You should definitely go check it out. Anyway. Back on topic, <laughs> we're done talking about R.A. Salvatore. The last group of petitioners that we want to talk about are those who serve Bast. And this is just a giant WTF. So, okay, you got Alfheim, great. You've got giants. We're describing all this wonderful, cold, frosty Norse stuff. Awesome. And then we're going to throw an Egyptian goddess just for the lulls. The hell? She does share an Earthberg with another Egyptian god. I will state that much. We'll get to that in a little bit whenever we're talking about the gods that are here. But yes, Bast, the Egyptian goddess of cats, is here. She has a number of human and elf petitioners as well as a number of the Lamasu, which are these intelligent winged cats that have people faces. They're basically they, sphinx. Kind of, but not exactly. They are different. Not much. But they are different. That is one of the great things, especially doing these deep dives about some of these forgotten realms, is you do get to kind of revisit some really kind of cool mythical creatures that maybe don't pop up as often or you may have forgotten about. That is one of the things I do very much enjoy. So yeah, Lamasu. Okay, there we go. Winged kitties. They made it into third edition. I don't think they've made it into fifth edition yet. Yeah, I don't, I don't even think I've seen them in third edition, honestly. So, I mean. They're in the monster manual. Oh. Base monster manual. Yeah. Gotcha. So the primary feature of Isgard is Yggdrasil, the world ash. We did talk a good bit about Yggdrasil whenever we were talking about the Beastlands. Isgard is where the world ash is. This is where the trunk is. This is where it's planted its roots and its branches reach out across the various upper planes of the Great Wheel cosmology. The branches of Yggdrasil reach to everywhere the Norse gods are worshipped and everywhere the Norse pantheon either resides or has proxies. That's a fairly large tree. <laughs> it is a very large tree. So just to recap a little bit, one of the roots goes into Hades, into the layer of Niflheim where Hel has her longhouse. That particular branch slash root is guarded by the monstrous dog Garm. Garm will let anyone pass it to go into Niflheim, but will not allow anyone to pass it coming out of Niflheim because it is a guard dog. It is loyal to hell and that's his job. <laughs> his job isn't to keep you out. His job is to keep you in. That's like the house that has the big rowdy or German shepherd that greets you at the door wagging its tail and then stands in front of it and growls and doesn't let you back out. So yeah, I've met many a puppy like that. Those are some good dogs. <laughs> yeah. 
Another one descends into Loki's Winter Hall and Pandemonium. So another element that we talked about a couple weeks ago whenever we were talking about Pandemonium. One branch reaches into the Grove of the Norns in Outlands. The Norns are divine beings, not quite gods, sort of demigods. They are the Norse equivalent of the classical Greco-Roman fates. And their purpose is to mark the fate of each mortal at birth and to maintain Yggdrasil, the world ash. And so Yggdrasil is basically a giant highway by which you can travel across Isgard or travel from Isgard to one of the other planes. One branch goes into Arvandor in Arborea. One reaches into Rowan's Hall, which is the headquarters of a faction called the Fated, which I'm going to get into when we get to the factions. One goes into the Well of Mimir in Jotunheim. And there's at least one branch that goes into every single world where the Norse pantheon is worshipped. And there are hundreds of lesser branches that just go wherever. A lot of them are private, so a power will secure the location at the end of that branch. And that'll be their private branch and you're not allowed to use it unless you're coming specifically to visit them. Well, that makes sense. Like, a lot of creatures will stake out and defend portals as well. And, I mean, basically... Yggdrasil is a giant living portal, so it makes sense that you're going to at least post a guard at the door one way or the other. Yeah, and this is where the purrs come in that we were talking about at the end of the Beastlines episode, because the purrs are the entities that are going to be standing on the branches guarding these portals. Right. All right, so that pretty much covers Yggdrasil. When we get into magic, magic in Isgard is a weird bird. It is seen as being less honorable than martial combat, and so it's not as prominently used, and there's some honor penalties, if you will, for using it in Eastguard. And this is largely because of its association with Loki. Loki being a trickster god, <laughs> they don't like magic because they see it as flash and trickery. That makes sense. I've brought it up once or twice before. Particularly in Greek culture, the sling throwers or your archers, they called them peltas. They were basically like a skirmisher or a light fighter. Again, generally a ranged fighter. And specifically in classical Greek culture, your villains were always a peltast of some sort, like Paris in the Iliad, different things like that, because it wasn't manly. A, you know, a true man fought like the hoplite with the shield and the spear and the sword. So being back away from the melee, as it were, being able to pick people off, the Spartans particularly despised Peltasts. You have the same kind of feel with magic here. I was joking before, you know, they don't like it because, hey, if you're fighting a combat every day, you're fighting a huge battle every day, you just have a mage that can drop Meteor Storm. And sure, you're just rolling D6s and you're killing, you know, dozens of creatures in one go. There's no bravery in that. You're just sitting on a hill a mile away dropping nukes on people. So what? You know? Yeah. But the Norse deities take more interest in magic than other gods, especially in Isgard. So by and large, if you're not in the immediate vicinity of where one of these gods are, you have to have this thing called a spell key in order to actually cast certain spells. Spell keys take the form of combinations of runes with specific meanings. And in order to learn the proper runes for the spells that you want to cast, you have to learn this thing called a kenning, which is basically the 
local Isgardian vernacular slang term for whatever it is that you're referencing. So for example, a ship is not called a ship. It's called a sea steed. And a king is not called a king. A king is called a giver of rings. So these are the sorts of things that you have to figure out. So you have to figure out what it's actually called and not what the common parlance word for the thing is. This reminds me a lot of the um, Aragon series where their magic was. And again, it kind of goes back to knowing the true name of a thing. So yeah, and again, we really do need to revisit the Ootomancy uh, one day and actually flesh that out as a class. Yeah. I think that would be a ton of fun. That would be, yeah. And so a spell key must be either carved into the material components for a spell, if the spell has material components, or be spoken as part of the casting if it doesn't have material components. I think a really fun way to do this, and it would be hard to create, but I think a really fun way would be to make like rune dice or something that you could roll that had certain syllables of the word. So if they wanted to cast the spell, they had to throw it. And if the word actually came up on the roll, they could cast the spell. Um, I would say we could do it almost like a variant wild magic table where you have a table, let's say a D20 table where you have two columns. One is a first part of the spell name and the other one is a second part of a spell name. And you roll two D20s and you pick the first part from the first and the second part from the second. And so you could have something like an acid ball or, you know, or a lightning bolt. But again, that would be far more involved. I'm wanting to say that the game Maze Rats has something like that. Oh, okay. I know it is one of the Rules Light OSR games that has a table like that. I remember listening to the creator talk about it on one of the interview podcasts I listened to. I think it was probably DDG podcast, Dungeon Designers Guild. And that is part of the game mechanic is if you're playing the spellcaster, you roll on the table to figure out what your spells are. And then you create a narrative spell based off of what it's called and find a way to use it in whatever situation that you come up into. That would be a lot of fun. That's a good bit of improv. All right, so let's get into a little bit on the specifics of the spells and the different schools of magic. This is all second edition Planescape stuff. So the schools have sort of shifted over editions, but a lot of the spells and a lot of the categories still hold true throughout, even in a fifth edition. Starting off with alteration spells. So spells that alter physical traits, so things like jump, fly, or haste, those still work normally because they augment your physical abilities. There would probably be some stigma involved in using them because it is still magic, but they work without any issues. Spells that warp space, like Dimension Door, Misty Step, or Teleport, require a special key in order to work at all. The keys are not very common, and as a fun little detail, Loki has been known to give out false keys, which will land the user in places like Carceri, Pandemonium, or the Palace of an Abyssal Demon Lord. Just for funs. Because it's Loki. Yeah. Spells that provide shelter, like Lehman's Tiny Hut, also require a key. The most common deity to get such a key from would be Frigga. I'm guessing that the theme here is she's a goddess of the hearth. Yeah. So that would be why this would be for spells that provide shelter. So things like Lehman's Tiny Hut, Rope Trick, Mordenkind's Magnificent Mansion, those sorts of spells. Illusion spells are in the domain of Loki and will work right up until you're in danger unless you have a key. (laughs) Right up until you really, really need it. Absolutely. (laughs) 
because it's Loki. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. As soon as you need it for that bet to win, yeah, no. Yeah, I feel that. (laughs) I feel that in my soul. (laughs) So warding spells like guards and wards, magic mouth, they're in the domain of Heimdall and only work within sight of the Bifrost unless you have the key for that spell. So this would probably also work for spell effects like Arcane Lock, Shield, and Mage Armor. I can see that. I'd probably put something like Sanctuary in here as well. Yes. Probably Bless. Uh, Not so much Bless. Uh, Okay. Because it gives you a D4 on attack rolls and saving throws. So it's it's not just warding. It's also enhancement. Okay. So Fog, Wind, and Weather spells are the domain of Thor. And he prevents any such spells from functioning in Isgard. Unless... You are specifically a cleric of Thor. Or you buy him a beer. (laughs) If you are not a cleric of Thor, you cannot cast anything that will affect the weather. If you are a cleric of Thor, you have to be a cleric of Thor in good standing and appeal to him for the courtesy of getting a key. Thor's kind of a dick. He is. (laughs) He really is. We don't like Thor. I'm totally feeling Loki on this one. I mean, you know what? At least you know where Loki stands. You know what you're going to get. You know where he stands. You got what you got. Just don't rely on it. (laughs) Anyway, moving on to Conjuration and Summoning. The Summon Monster spell, which has since been broken off into very specific categories in 5th edition. It used to be just Summon Monster, which allowed you to summon a creature of a certain CR. Summon Monster would only summon Einherjar on the first layer will only summon giants or ogres on the second layer, and will only summon dwarves or trolls on the third layer. I like it. And you cannot summon elementals from the inner planes to Isgard. And if you try to summon a creature from a different outer plane, it has a 10% chance of failing. I like that. And again, the spell fizzle rule is something that 5th edition has really cut out by and large that I enjoyed in older editions for various things, just because it kind of makes sense that sometimes your spell just doesn't work for whatever reason. So yeah, Yeah. I can totally embrace that. So next is divination spells. They fall into the domain of Odin. And so most divination spells function more effectively than normal on Isgard, because Odin isn't a dick. All signs say, you's gonna die. (laughs) so the range and duration of scrying spells are doubled but limited to a single creature target at a time and you can only look through one eye (laughs) (laughs) and any attempts to scry on locations groups or epic events automatically fail so you can only scry on individual people but you can do it really good and i would say that spells like augury or contact other plane spells where you're asking for advice that they would be more clear in their responses, that they would more readily give you an accurate response. Yeah. Because a lot of them do have that percent chance for a misinterpretation. Maybe you get advantage on that roll. Maybe you get to roll it twice and check and see if you actually do get the right answer. Yeah, no, I like that. I would make sure that your answer is always correct, too. Because, again, depending on who or what you're contacting, they can be a little wily sometimes. But, yeah, no, those are both perfectly reasonable caveats. They may require a little bit of interpretation, but they will be accurate. Yeah. Next up, Necromancy. Again, in 2nd edition, healing spells were Necromancy and not Evocation. And I think that's how it's supposed to be because you are affecting life energy. So healing and curing spells 
are generally looked down upon. As I mentioned earlier, it's a mark of honor to be able to bear your wounds and still accomplish your tasks. It is a mark of personal honor for these warriors. Yes, they get cut up in their battles, but they still go on and kill all of their foes. And so, yeah, they're all cut to pieces, but they're still standing. So a bit of a philosophical question here. If we're on this planet and we're doing our stuff and we survive, you know, massive melee battle on Monday and we broke our back, we lost a leg, we've had half our hand chopped off, but we survived. Are we better off committing suicide and rezzing full on Tuesday? Or on Tuesday, do we automatically heal? Or are we still all mangled up on Tuesday if we live through Monday? I would say that you're mangled up until you die. Yeah, so maybe like just kind of do the suicide at 11.59? Honestly, I would say that there is probably a good bit of stigma around doing that. Because, as this suggests, it's a mark of honor to bear your wounds and still accomplish your tasks. So, you could be walking or, you know, limping around. You only have one arm. You know, you're beaten and bloodied and not doing very good at all. But you're still up. And you still are there to face your foes. And it would be one of those things where you would still have to meet your death in honorable combat that there would be a certain amount of dishonor to committing the suicide. That would be a great NPC to run with the Iron Man, the longest lived whoever on this plane, you know, because I'm sure it rotates fairly frequently. Maybe Bob the Builder is a barbarian. He's <laughs> he's lived three weeks in a row, you know, and he, he hasn't responded yet, you know? That'd be a really cool scenario to run, I think. It's Wreck-It Ralph. Yeah, totally. <laughs> So necromantic spells that deal damage are cast as if one level higher with an ease guard. I'm not entirely sure why. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me why necromantic spells would be enhanced here. Because it's going to be harder to cast, so it's going to burn a one spell slot higher. So even like your cantrips are going to be like burning your first level spells. Okay. Okay. And so, yeah, so, so that, you're going to do uh... more damage, but it's going to cost you more. You're not going to have as many to throw out. That's how I would interpret that, at least, personally. Okay, that you have to burn a higher level spell slot in order to cast it. Yeah. Okay, that does make a little more sense. And it is specified that if you use damaging necromantic spells to attack one of Hell's followers, you may draw her attention. Oh, that sounds fun. That sounds like a terrible idea, James. That sounds like we should get one of those like shiny gloves with a bunch of stones in it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not. Let's oh, not. Okay, fine. Fine. Let's go poke the bear. I'll go say hi to Father Bear again after this because, you know, he's my buddy. <laughs> he is your buddy. Wild magic, just like in Pandemonium, wild magic is enhanced. So you do still roll twice for your spell variation and take the more extreme result. Again, you had a d20 that you would roll whenever you would cast a wild magic spell depending on the level of the spell. Your d20 roll would tell you how many spell levels higher or lower the spell actually cast at. And there were certain results on that table that automatically gave you a wild magic surge. Now, you did finish your wild magic table, correct? Yeah, we released that a while back. Yeah, so I mean, that is definitely something if you kind of want a little more fun thing, because that was actually a lot of fun that Ian did. Definitely check out our Patreon for that, because we do have some wild magic tables that they're kind of fun, they're kind of funny, some of this stuff's kind of crazy. So that is something to cast an eye upon. And I did take the second edition wild magic surge table, and I altered the stuff that 
didn't translate directly to fifth edition so that you can use this whole table as is in fifth edition. Anyway, back to now. (laughs) So whenever you roll twice for your spell variation, if either one of those results would give you a wild surge, you get a wild surge, just like in pandemonium. And the wild magic surges in Isgard tend to be a little bit different than normal because they include things like berserker rages, shape-shifting into animal forms, gigantism, frost and steam effects, and elemental storms. If your gigantism lasts more than four hours, please consult your cleric. (laughs) All right, and then the last category in second edition is elemental magic. Weather spells, as we have mentioned because of Thor, have no effect when cast by mortals. Ooh. Other elemental spells work only if you have the right spell key for that element. So in order to cast the fire spell, you have to have the fire rune. If you want to cast a cold spell, you have to have a cold rune, lightning, lightning, etc., etc. You'd think, you know, with the weather thing, Thor would have a lockdown on like your thunder and lightning damage spells too. You would think. I would actually probably say that lightning would also be a no-go. A weather spell? Yeah, I could see yeah. that. Thunder, maybe not. Thunder might be a little bit more sonic because it used to be classified as sonic. Yes. And so there are two exceptions to this. Fire spells work in Muspelheim, which is the second layer without a key, because that's where all of the fire is on top. And then cold spells work in Jotunheim without a key. Because because Frost Giants. Frost Giants. Now, I will say that this whole plane, lots and lots of fun names. I kind of enjoy that bit. Yeah. And almost all of them are Heim. So many bad jokes, I'm just going to let that one go past. (laughs) I appreciate that. All right, so moving on into the factions that are present in Eastguard, there are two major factions that you will run into in Eastguard. The first are called the Fated, also known as Takers or the Heartless. This is a faction of people who believe that might makes right, and the universe belongs to those with the power to take it. They also believe that anyone can achieve anything If they just put their mind to it and put the work in to do it. These are people who really read into Hobbes and Locke and the early philosophies. Which, you know, I kind of agree with a lot of them. But yeah, this is taking that to a bit of an extreme. These are American capitalists. They totally are, yeah. (laughs) The difference is that they also emphasize that there are some things that have to be earned and cannot simply be taken by force. Things like respect and happiness. Well, you know, again, this is a chaotic good plane. Yes, Not throwing any shade at all, no. (laughs) Anyway, so the Fated make their headquarters at Rowan's Hall, which is on the first layer of Isgard. It is named after their leader, who is an individual named Factol, Rowan Darkwood. Rowan Darkwood is... I had to double-check the numbers whenever I found him in the book. He is a 19th-level ranger, 20th-level paladin of Heimdall. Sweet Jeebus. Yes. There's a reason why he is basically the second most powerful person in Sigil, behind the Lady of Pain. He is considered the most powerful mortal in Sigil. Okay. And he is the leader of this faction, the Fated. And whenever he is not in Sigil, he's usually hamming it up with Heimdall, who is his god. Yeah, I can respect that. And then the other faction that you're going to run into in Eastguard, they're the complete opposite of the Fated. They're known as the Ringgivers, also known as Bargainers or Beggars, again, depending on who you're talking to. Now, I like this concept of Ringgivers. This actually goes back to a lot of medieval lore, particularly Italy, the Holy Roman Empire, that area. This is actually has a lot of feudal lore tie-ins, so I can get more into that later, but this is actually kind of a really cool group. I like this a lot. 
I mean, if I recall correctly, it also ties into the lore of things like Beowulf. Yeah. Isn't the king that, what's his name? The king of the Danes that Beowulf goes to whenever they have their Grendel problem. That is his thing is that when the king gives you a ring, that is a mark of nobility. That is a mark that you stand in high esteem in my court. To a point, yeah, that could be classified as that. The ring givers in a lot of lore, the lords would actually go to people and vassals and they would give gifts, you know, rings, bracelets, cuffs, you know, food, whatever. And as they gave these gifts, it kind of ties back to the old Roman patron-client relationship. Hey, you had a need, I gave you a gift, so I did you a favor. So when I need a favor, just remember this favor I gave you. And it kind of went that way. So the whole thing was you could go and give extravagantly, and you passed yourself off. One, you showed your wealth because, hey, I can give this awesome stuff away. I've got so much wealth, I can just toss it around. And then, like I said, when the time came that you needed a favor, you had a lot of tokens you could call on. Hey, well, remember when I gave you this? Well, remember when I did this for you? Remember when I solved this problem for you? It was that kind of thing. Right. So the ring givers are a group of well-meaning individuals who shepherd new arrivals to the plane. According to the books, they give a helping hand rather than a battle cry to travelers and help them acclimate to the plane and its many nuances. So they're basically... They're the Transfer Student Welcoming Committee for people who may not be prepared for the first person they see coming at them with a battle axe. So by contrast to the Fated, they believe the universe belongs to those who can give it up. They believe that you get as good as you give and that the multiverse is a set of sticky traps set up to catch the greedy and that poverty is what can release you from that trap. Uh, And that through poverty, they gain their heart's desires. Kind of Buddhist. It does have that ascetic hermit feel to it. Yeah, I could see that. Not so much into that one, but okay. (laughs) I don't want to own the world, but I do want to be comfortable. Comfort's good. (laughs) But the way that they see it is the more that you give away, the more that you get in return. Right. So it's sort of that open exchange. These are the communists, the capitalists. Yes. They just don't have a beer hall push and we'll be fine. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) We're not doing that. We're not doing this, Joe. (laughs) Anyway, those are basically the two factions in Isgard. There's not a whole lot on them. There are a couple of other factions that have a small presence within this plane, but not many. I mean, more so, you're going to have these two factions. You're going to have the factions tied to whatever deity you're going to be following. But even beyond these factions, so much that... If you see anybody, they're more likely just to challenge you to a one-on-one duel than not, because that's how the plane works anyway. So there's not going to be a whole lot of faction battle or faction interaction as much as just everyone's throwing down on everything. Pretty much, yeah. So let's go ahead and move on a little bit to the powers of Asgard. So the deities that you're going to find here. Yeah, Eastgard, sorry. Did I say Asgard? Yeah, Marvel's going to get you for that. Well, Asgard is the city, Isgard is the plane. <laughs> Please don't hate us, Disney. <laughs> so the various powers of Isgard. The primary one, the one that you're going to have to talk about first, is the Norse Pantheon. So chiefly Odin and his kinsmen, who are the Aesir. But there are also their cousins, quote unquote, the Vanir, who are also Norse gods, but are kind of the other family of Norse gods. They're the other mothers. They usually don't get along real well. There's a lot of interfamily rivalry and conflict going on between the two. Like any good family, really. 
yeah, not quite Hatfield and McCoy, but in that realm. Yes. So their primary proxies, their primary semi-divine servants are the Valkyries who collect the souls of the slain from the field of battle. But they are also served by hosts of the Einherjar. So the souls of the Valiant Dead, if they become honed enough, if you will, they end up becoming Einherjar and then they can go into the service of one of the hosts of one of the Norse gods. So that would actually be a goal that one of these petitioner souls might actually have is to improve themselves enough to reach that point. That'd be kind of cool, yeah. And then the next batch, you've got Surtur and Thrym, who are the gods of Frost and Fire Giants, respectively. So Heat Miser and Frost Miser, respectively. Frost Miser and Heat Miser, respectively. Okay. Surtur is Frost, Thrym is Fire. And they rule over the giants in Jotunheim and Muspelheim. Nope, I got that backwards. James was right. Thrym is the god of frost giants and Surtur is the god of fire giants. The next one is Asturinian, who is one of the lesser known dragon gods. They're known as the messenger of Io. Io being, at least in second and third edition, the overarching dragon god over everybody. If I recall correctly, in some lore, Io is the mother that birthed Bahamut and Tiamat. Maybe. I only know her as the daughter of Zeus and the moon of Jupiter. <laughs> There's that, too. Now that Fizzbands is out, we're going to have to do a dragon episode. Absolutely. I still need to pick up Fizzbands. I am looking forward to it. I have my copy. I have the special alternate cover copy, and it is glorious and gorgeous. I've been doing house repairs. <laughs> my friendly local game store owner automatically just orders me the alternate cover copies and I go in on release day and pick it up. <laughs> That's awesome. So shout out to Dwayne's World here in Kingsport. That's actually a really awesome shop. It's really, it really is. nice in there. Yeah. It, Dwayne's great. He also, I don't think, listens to the podcast, so he's not going to hear that. But hey, I don't care. Dwayne's great. Dwayne, if you ever go back and listen to this, you're great. <laughs> so Asterinian, it's there's so many vowels in this name. It's Welsh. No, if it was Welsh, it would be all consonants. Fair enough. It's the opposite of Welsh. Yeah. She makes her lair on Nidaveller, which is the third lair. She is a god of learning, invention, and pleasure. I'm liking her so far. Her proxies are brass and copper great worms. So the biggest, baddest brass and copper dragons that you can find. I'm still in. Oh, I think you're just in general really going to like her. She encourages her followers to think for themselves rather than relying on the word of others. And the worst crime in her eyes is not trusting yourself and your own devices. Yeah, I'm totally rolling to seduce this dragon. <laughs> well, here's the catch. If someone goes and visits her, she eats them unless she finds them amusing. That's why we have the Ballad of Larry the Knickernapping Kobold. <laughs> <laughs> she is quite fond of the inventions of the Norse dwarves who also reside on this lair. And occasionally she will take on the guise of a dwarf and just walk among them. Okay, too much hair, I'm out. <laughs> it's the beard. Yeah, I can't do the beard, I'm sorry. It's the glorious golden beard. <laughs> there should only be one beard in a relationship and that is mine. <laughs> anyway, next up we've got Saloon and Soma who are moon god slash goddesses. I know Selun is a goddess. I think Soma may be a god, maybe a goddess. I don't know. It didn't state in the literature that I was looking at. I'm guessing that it ends with an A. I would guess it would be a goddess. I'm thinking so. And 
typically in most cultures, the moon is seen as feminine and the sun is seen as masculine. masculine. Correct. Except in German, which is backwards. In German, the sun is feminine and the moon is masculine. I wonder how they got that. That's a whole cultural discussion for later, though. Yes. So they are attended by a large number of lycanthropes, especially werebears and werebores, because they're moon gods. Okay. So they are not going to get along with Father Bear. Oh, they probably would, because they are good aligned gods. Not if they're attended by lycanthropes. Especially werebears. Right, but that was the whole point with Father Bear, is that he was... Father Bear doesn't like evil lycanthropes. Oh, okay. I thought it was all lycanthropes. Oh, it is specifically evil lycanthropes. Okay. Because all of his petitioners, all of his followers in his camp with him are werebears. I thought they were at some point until they were cured. No. Okay, well, never mind then. You know, the one that we talked about, Barry Jaw the Black, he is a werebear that keeps his little human thumbs whenever he goes into his bear form. That is correct, yes. But they are also attended by Lalendi, which we talked about a little bit in some previous episodes, are these half-person, half-snake entities with great big wings. Winged Yanti. <laughs> Kinda. But Soma also commands a legion of Asuras, and I'm going to get to Asuras a little bit when we get to our creatures. Once we get done with the gods. Now here we go. Anhur, who is the Egyptian slash Mulharandi god of war, shares an earthberg with Bast. So this is where that connection is. This particular earthberg is very arid, very desert-like. So the presence of these Egyptian gods has made it more Egyptian, I guess. I get it. It does not mesh. I can see Anhor being here since he is a god of war, but it just doesn't feel right in my opinion. I would almost want him to be in a more lawful plane than this. Absolutely. I mean, I get where they're coming from, but it just doesn't fit. No, it doesn't feel right. Because the Egyptians weren't exactly known for having their individualist warriors they were known for having their unified fighting forces right which requires a bit of law it requires order and discipline and that's not what you get in Isgard. it's hard to say because the mulharandi pantheon isn't really in DD cosmology in the newer books now but... if you were gonna go like sumerian or babylonian i could see where you could have like gilgamesh here you know Something like that where you have yeah. the old heroes, but not Egyptian. Unless you're going with the whole pharaoh rising with the sun resurrection thing and the dung beetle rolling the sun across the sky, maybe with that kind of daily resurrection. Even then, Mount Celestia would be the better choice. Yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree. The Egyptian gods don't feel right here. So, yeah. wizards, you did one wrong. <laughs> no, TSR. TSR? Oh, yeah. Well, they did more than one wrong. <laughs> yeah, but anyway... So Anhor and Bast are here. Whether they belong here or not is irrelevant. They're here. <laughs> they done showed up. They done showed up. And since Bast is a cat, she's going to stay because what are you going to do? Right. So her proxies include Asuras, Lamasu, which are the people-faced winged cats, and Sphinxes. And it is stated that even warriors as able and stoic as the Einherjar avoid harming Bast's followers and petitioners, lest they be beset by a mob of Bast cats and slowly flayed alive. Worse than that, they'll probably just pee on all their armor, and so all their stuff's going to stink until forever. Forever. Because that, that does not wash out. <laughs> so there are some other named deities in Isgard. In 2nd edition, there's two called Hachiman and Okuninushi. 
I think that second one is a Japanese deity. I'm not sure. I couldn't find a whole lot on either of them. They rule over a realm called Kenyama, which is a, I think, sort of the more Japanese samurai sort of feel to it with that noble individual warrior. Yeah, with as little as I know about Japanese culture and just stereotypical samurai, they would fit well here. A whole lot more than the Egyptian gods. So Absolutely. I'm okay with I'm okay with them here. And it is said that they are served by the spirits of warriors, Kenku, and air spirits. Like, I'm honestly surprised if they're throwing these here that there's no Oni walking around. Because again, that would make a lot of sense. There probably are in that realm if that is a Japanese-themed realm. Okay. And if there aren't, I give you full reign to do that. Not that you need my permission or anything, but I give you permission to do that. <laughs> in third edition, the god Kord, I think he's Kata good, yeah. god of war. And I'm never sure how to pronounce this, whether it's Oladamara or Olidamara, the god of revelry, and is a very prominent god of bards and rogues in 3rd edition. Both of them are present here. Again, I can see both of those there, yeah. Particularly one of Kord's thing is, again, that constantly testing and trying yourself and running yourself up against a benchmark to see where you stand and trying to improve. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, Oldamara, I am not terribly familiar with, but a god of revelry, again, this is kind of like the weird frat boy realm. So, yeah, there's a certain fit there that makes sense. Well, he is also a trickster god. And okay, so, yeah. with Loki being here. Yeah, that still definitely fits, yeah. And then, lastly, you have the Chinese god Shu Xing. I probably butchered that, and I'm sorry. And Adun, who is a Norse god who take turns watching the fruit of immortality. So they guard the tree where the fruit of immortality grows. Okay. Shu Sing watches the peaches claimed by the celestial bureaucracy. We also talked about these peaches in the Jade Palace of Shang-Ti, the celestial emperor, way back in Mechanus. Millions of peaches, peaches for free. So, no. so some of them are growing here on this tree, and some of them are growing in the palace, I guess. I guess they're growing in both places. I would imagine maybe like each tree is part of a smaller grove. Maybe they're growing off of branches of Yidrasil itself, which would kind of make a weird amount of sense. Yeah, okay. But Adun watches the golden apples of Norse myth. So the golden apples play a very prominent role in Norse mythology. If you eat it, you become immortal. For a time. For a time. Which is completely then, different than the golden apples in Greek myth. <laughs> yes, but that's what they do. They take turns guarding. Apparently, Adun stays in the compound even when she's off duty. And Shu Sing goes on walkabout whenever he's not on duty. Well, Adun's been burned by Loki once or twice. I'm pretty sure she wants to stay fairly close. Yeah. There is yeah. that. <laughs> there is that. There's some history there. All right. And so that's pretty much all of the gods of Isgard that I could find. I'm sure that there are probably a few more hiding away somewhere buried in Planescape books. I did not have a chance to dig through all of them in preparation for this. If we find more, we'll bring them up as we go through the layers next week. So a couple of the notable creatures of Isgard. Uh, we've already mentioned some of them. The Einherjar, 
we, we went into a little bit of detail on them back when we did Elysium, I think. We had the Purrs who are guarding the portals on Yggdrasil. The Ratatosk, the squirrel people who live on Yggdrasil. We covered those a bit in Beastlands and we did the write-up for them, which is on our Patreon, that if you are a patron, you get access to that. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> but there are a few other creatures that I wanted to go into a little bit of detail on. The first are the Lelendi. So they are winged half serpent, half humanoids. The humanoid portions are normal skin tones, but the wings and scales are vibrantly colored. In the 3.5 Monster Manual, the Lelendi have rainbow wings. Now, do they specify like which half? Is it truly like a centaur where the upper half is human, the lower yes. half snake? Okay. Yes. Because I kind of want to see like head and maybe arms of a human and leg of a human and then just like a weird snake body in between. <laughs> no, yeah. they, they are human from the waist up. Okay. With giant like eagle wings. Oh, nice. Because they're good aligned. So good aligned, get eagle wings. Evil aligned, get bat wings. That's how it works, James. <laughs> it's Aussie. It's how I would do obviously so they are all bards so they all carry both instruments and weapons and they all have that natural ability to charm that all of the various enchantment spells again these still very yanti to me yeah i mean i can see that i can get that some of the notable spells in their arsenal in second edition at least include hallucinatory terrain auto's irresistible dance and the various speak spells so speak with plants speak with animals all of those they're capable of understanding all intelligent communication including writing and sign language and they have infravision which was the precursor of dark vision out to 300 feet impressive and whenever they have to deal with a particularly irksome enemy they will wrap their serpentine lower half around them fly up in the air for 10 rounds and then drop them for max fall damage that's kind of a douchey thing to do (laughs) (laughs) that kind of really sucks i mean it's effective but that kind of really sucks and even in second edition i don't know if the massive damage rules were a thing baseline in second edition i'm sure they were because second edition killed player characters all the time but it did specify that if you took at least 50 points of damage you had to make a saving throw or just die and dead whether it reduced you to zero hit points or not if you take 50 or more points of damage you had to make this saving throw or you just die which was the massive damage cut off in third edition if you dealt 50 points of damage to something you killed it yeah if a single blow deals at least 50 damage it dies anyway moving on another notable detail about the lalendi is that they're able to choose the hour of their death it is referred to as the silent hour and it's unknown whether it is a blessing from the moon god that they serve or whether it is a curse from a power of law that the lalendi once served and then abandoned I could see that either way, but if they die on Yisgard, it doesn't matter because they're waking up at dawn again anyway. So they get one hour of sleep. No, this is for real, real, not for play play. Uh Uh-oh. So when they die, they are transformed into energy in a combined sort of moonbeam and chaos spell. So chaos was basically confusion on steroids, where there were certain categories of individuals who just didn't get a saving throw on it. Oh, nice. But it functions as the confusion spell, except for... There are certain 
individuals that just don't get a saving throw. And there's a whole big list of the individuals that do get saving throws. But when they enter their silent hour, they go around and they make their farewells and then they just sort of coil up and they pass on unless they don't. Because Lelendi, who enter their silent hour, are also much more fierce fighters. According to the second edition books, they always win initiative. Nice. So they always get to go first in initiative order. They get a plus four bonus to their attack rolls and they deal double damage. Damn. And unless they are slain before the end of the hour, they still die at the end of their silent hour, just like normal. They're like, I got nothing left to lose. I'm going to show my God just how devoted I am. And I'm just going to go in here and kill everything. I like it. But they can still be killed outside of their silent hour. And that's what they're really afraid of. Because if a Lilendi dies while not in their silent hour their souls are not returned to the power they serve. Their essence is not returned to the plane. It is lost forever. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. So a Lelendi that is not in their silent hour is not going to stand there and fight you to the death. They are going to get away if it starts going poorly. All right. Next on the list are the Fencier and Raka. These are both part of the same entity. They're also referred to as Isgardian trolls. Uh, they're far more intelligent than prime material trolls. They are completely unrelated biologically. So they don't have the troll regeneration that material plane trolls do and all of that stuff, or the weakness to fire. And, but they do keep their tie to Scandinavian folklore trolls where they are susceptible to sunlight. And if exposed to sunlight for more than one round, they turn to stone. Something to avoid. Yes, which is why they live on the third layer with all the tunnels and stuff, primarily. But the odd thing is, this is only something that happens with the adults. The adults are susceptible to the sunlight and they have to stay in the dark. But young Fensir do not have the sunlight sensitivity. So they're able to run around freely in the daylight and act like hooligans because their parents aren't going to come out and stop them. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> they tend to be born in litters, 2d4 Fensir at a time. And each litter of Fensir tends to have at least one set of identical twins. And culturally, double weddings between sets of twins, or at least between sets of siblings, seem to be very common. Makes sense. This is kind of a weird combination of stuff. Male fencier are considered, quote, poor hunters, fair craftsmen, and exceptional cooks. They are the fencier that have access to magic, primarily magics that they use in combination with herbalism. So for plant-based healing magics and whatnot. Whereas the females are the rulers of the household and are known for their abilities as brewmasters and weavers. Well, I mean, if you want to wear clothing and have something to drink, you got to tip your hat to the ladies. <laughs> and they will typically brew their brews or, you know, weave their fabrics and use them as trade goods to get the other stuff that they need. Perfectly reasonable. They also tend to be the hunters because they are physically stronger than the males. And they hunt by throwing boulders at their quarry. I like it. And they just huck a rock at it. <laughs> a big old rock. And when a female fencier bears their first litter of offspring, they end up becoming a raka, which translates to devourer. And they start to change from this 
vaguely human looking individual with just some kind of a kind of an elongated nose kind of bigger ears a little bit warty transforms into this giant grotesque creature they get upwards of 25 feet tall and weigh up to 6,000 pounds this reminds me of like the stone giants in wow uh, particularly like in Arathi Highlands. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And once you get a Raka, their family will strip the entire countryside around bear to feed her. Okay. And they will eat anything that is even remotely edible grass, roots, tree bark, scavenged meat, certain varieties of clay. Anything that is even remotely edible, they are going to gather it up and the male fencier are going to cook it and the raka is going to eat it well i mean six thousand pounds that's a lot of feeding that's a lot of feeding (laughs) all raka die within a few years of this initial growth some of them will have birthed two or even three litters of fencier in that time and when a raka dies the family around the raka is seized by this wanderlust called the long walk where they all just get up and they leave and they wander out. Sometimes they will form a horde that will launch an attack on one of the other settled areas here in Isgard, something like the town of Asgard or Alfheim, where the elves are, you know, someplace that is very resource rich. But most often they will just find another established fencier family and just sort of integrate into it. That's like weirdly sad and depressing. It is. It really is. I don't like those anymore. Okay, let's skip those. And then the next one are the Lamasu, and there's not really a whole lot on them. They're intelligent winged cats with human faces. They're very like sphinxes. I don't think that there's a whole lot to really distinguish them from a sphinx, aside from the fact that the sphinx tend to have this sort of natural divination ability. Yeah, I was going to say the Sphinx have a natural magic to them, and then there's probably a size thing too with these as well. Probably, but there's really not a whole lot to differentiate between a Lamasu and a Sphinx. And all of the Lamasu in Isgard are in service to Bast. Full stop. Totally makes sense. And then the last one that I wanted to cover are the Asuras. This is one that we really should have covered in Arborea and we've missed. The Asuras are Archons from Mount Celestia that have fallen to the whims of chaos. So they are expelled from Mount Celestia and then they venture across the chaotic realms and end up here. They kind of have this elven look to them, but they have these gossamer butterfly wings, but they're still full size, six foot tall humanoids with proportional butterfly wings. So they look kind of like the traditional concept of a large fairy. Yes. Not the fae, but like the Western version of a fairy. Tinkerbell fairy. <laughs> Tinkerbell fairies, yes. They have marble white flesh and long red, gold, or copper hair with piercing, fiery eyes. Okay. So they're Irish. Um, <laughs> maybe Russian. Maybe. So they tend to wear these loose-fitting white or very pale blue togas for whatever reason. And the males tend to wear these winged helms. Again, I'm seeing Bugs Bunny in What's Opera Doc, where he had the winged helm and the toga. Yeah. The long dress. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Whereas the female Asuras just leave their hair to, you know, Merida from Brave just poof out everywhere. Many of them carry flame tongue swords, so they have fiery swords, and they are permanently under the effects of the detect lie and true seeing spells. So they can see through all illusions. They can tell whenever somebody is being dishonest with them. Snazzy. 
they also have access to many enchantment spells like charm, command, fear, friends, and hold person. And as we discussed earlier, these generally work fairly well in Yisgard, so there's not going to be too much conflict with those spells working here. Yes, and because they feed on positive energy, as long as they are staying in the upper planes, they have no need for food, air, or sleep. Impressive. Because they feed just purely off of the the positive energy. Off of happy thoughts. (laughs) And while most Asuras are in service to a deity they sometimes end up without a power to serve. And so they go around as rogue entities. Rogue Asuras tend to wander the plains, defending the downtrodden and providing for the needy because they are chaotic good entities. These rogue Asuras sometimes get a little bit carried away in their defense of quote-unquote good, utilizing violence and their magical powers in true chaotic good fashion. And that, you know, I will save you all, even if I have to kill you all to do it. (laughs) That can be the best way sometimes. And this seems to be a result of their isolation, because they tend to form into hosts as these sort of collective groups whenever they are in service to a power. But if they end up going rogue, they are by themselves. And isolation is really not good for an Asura. Okay. uh, Because they start to lose their grip on... Balance. Yes. A little bit. To quote a passage from 2nd edition, Asuras without a host wander about the plains, giving a good turn wherever they go. But here's the real dark of it. When they travel alone, they go a little barmy. You meet one, get greeted politely, and the next thing you know, he'll take off your head to save a rabbit you've trapped for dinner, or steal your whole haul to give to some poor street waif. You might say they lose a bit of perspective on the whole good-evil thing. Lucky for a sod like me, a clever tongue can talk them out of their cockeyed notions. You can use the good sense within the creatures to show them their own folly. So they going a little bit uh, chaotic stupid, yeah. to, to borrow paladin terminology. <laughs> Instead of lawful stupid, it's chaotic stupid. No, I like it. And the last little detail on them is that Rogasur is sometimes succumb to the charms of a particularly pious or righteous human and they fall in love and they have kids like you do and that's how we get tieflings oh wait no No, that's not (laughs) asmr yes their offspring tend to look like very fair-skinned humans with piercing eyes and usually have the latent ability to detect lies just like an asura does and they tend to become mystics holy figures or powerful warriors for the forces of goodness I like them. They're not too bad. I mean, yeah, they're kind of crazy, but I mean, I like a little crazy. Yeah, they're great. (laughs) They're great. All right, so that's going to bring us to the end here because, geez, that's another long one. Yeah. These last few are. They just are. It's a lot to cover just because they haven't been covered and there was so much that got left behind. And we've talked about this a lot before is that we really enjoy being able to bring this up just because there is so much that is forgotten. And half the fun is, you know, bringing this back up to the surface so it can be hopefully reexamined and enjoyed again just because there was a lot that went into these older editions that completely just got skipped. So I think that brings us to the end of today's episode. So thank you everyone for listening in today if you have any comments suggestions or ideas please send us an email under common taste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our twitter account at uct homebrew james and i are going to be doing something a little bit different the week after thanksgiving we're going to get together and do a little q a at least that's what we're hoping to do <laughs> in order to do that we need some questions so we need everybody who's listening to send us some questions 
you can send it to the email. I'm going to have a pinned post on Twitter. Go ahead and leave it as a comment on Twitter or send it to us as a direct message through Twitter. We'll gather up what we get and we'll go through them and we will answer as many as time allows just to sort of give ourselves a little bit of an easier episode post Thanksgiving so that I don't have to spend quite as much time editing on it. Because really after that much turkey, we're all just going to want to take a nap. Especially whenever I'm the one that has to cook the turkey. But in addition to all of that, I am still doing our Shakespeare and Insult page a day calendar inspired roleplay prompts six days a week. They go up on the Twitter account, get cross posted to Instagram and Facebook at Undercommon Taste. We are on Patreon, patreon.com slash Undercommon Taste. All of our write ups go up on Patreon. Our most recent upload to patron exclusive write-ups was our write-up on the Ratatosk, the flying squirrel people race that we were talking about a little bit earlier in this episode and that we talked about in the Beastlands. So for $3 a month, you too can get access to the Ratatosk for either a creature to throw at your players or a player character option for you to run one of these characters at your table. We are also on Discord, and you can find the link to our Discord channel in the show notes. So please do come over to Discord and talk to us. You can find our podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. As always, please give us a rating and review. This helps us know what you like to hear, what you want to know more of. This also increases our visibility. So thank you. Thanks once again for listening, and we will be back next week with the three layers of Eastguard. Happy gaming. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, suggestions, or ideas, you can email them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media. We're at Undercommon Taste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at UCT Homebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash undercommontaste. Our theme is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.